Hey, we're continuing this series of the book of John, really 60 days going through the gospel of John by the, the writer John. And so really, if you get anything out of this series of all 60 days between Sunday mornings and some of us are gathering on Wednesdays through the week to really go more in depth. And if you want to do that, I'll be leading that this week. I'd love to take this passage and another one and go more into the details and kind of talk and have conversation through that. But if you get one thing out of the book of John, why did John write this message? Why did he write this book? And it's this. It's to show that Jesus is God. That is his point. You'll see that in the text today. And you'll see that if you kind of remember that and, and go back to different messages we've had, you'll also remember that and look ahead that Jesus is God. I want to also just take a moment. You know, we, we stream these, these messages online, so there's people right now. I know we have people who are out of state who watch these messages. We have people, uh, some people who recently uh, joined the military who are at different bases around the United States watching this message. But today, my family is, is 2,300 miles away eating donuts right now watching me online. So I just want to give a, a little shout out to them, and that's it. So yeah, they're eating donuts watching me. How cool is that? Yeah, Henry, pray, and then we're going to jump into the text. If you have a Bible, John eleven seventeen is where we'll be jumping in. God, today is good, and thank you for always pursuing us. We know the pursuit of Jesus is a powerful thing. Not only changes our life for eternity, but and after this life, but changes our, our life here in the now. And by that power, God, I ask that you do that uh, in this place, that you speak to us, that you change us, that we don't walk away uh, going, that was another Sunday, that was another good Sunday. But God, we want to be uh, people who experience more than that. Spirit, speak to our hearts and to our minds and give us a little push in the direction you want us to go. God, meet us where we're at. It's in your holy name. Amen. One of the shows I absolutely love on TV is a show on the History Channel called American Restoration. And so and I, I love seeing old vintage things being restored. So even cars, I, I love old cars that are, are rusty and beat up and have a story and seeing them, them be restored, really new life being put into them. And so really the, the summary or the plot line or the storyline of American Restoration, if you haven't seen it, is this. Someone comes in with something that's old, an antique, an old car, an old motorcycle, uh, something that is very rotted with rust and falling apart, and they bring it to this guy, Rick, and say, can you restore this? And so really, it goes from that, and then it goes from this other space that next you see the owner not only paying out a lot of money, but they show up, and now this thing that is rusted and falling apart is now under this, this sheet or this curtain, ready for its big unveiling. And so they pull off the sheet, and this thing is polished, fresh paint. It's brand new. It's perfect. And I think why I like this show so much is that it goes from this place of like brokenness and falling apart and rusty and rotted 
instantly, it kind of skips the process of it, and it goes right to this place of perfection and new life. But one thing I would love to see in the show is the space in between these two spaces. In the space in between, there's a lot of, there's a lot of putting back together what is broken. There's a lot of, I'm sure, pain in there. There's a lot of frustration on how does this thing even work? Or is this even possible? I would even imagine there's probably some blood given to it. But I think I like the show because it skips over that. But this space right here in between really the brokenness in the new life, that's the space we're going to talk about today. So what is this message about? It's about tears. It's about pain. It's about anger. It's about suffering. What a great topic, right, for 8.30 in the morning. But that's what we're going to talk about is this space. How do we articulate our pain when we're in this space? So how do we tell someone how we're feeling? How, are we, how do we actually explain to someone that this is where I'm at? How do we not just keep it to ourselves, internalize it? At the same time, maybe if we're not in the place of pain, we're probably in, an, in another seat. And the other seat is, how do we go and sit and be present with people who are full of tears, anger, and pain? How do we enter into that? Because really, I would say the reality is we're at one place or the other. We're the person who's going through the pain or the person who needs to sit with the person in pain. And they're both difficult spots to be. And I think some of you right now are going, that's, that's me. Derek, you are speaking to me. That's where I am at. And yes, that's a reality. And I think the reality is too, some of you maybe just came out of the pain. And some of us are about to enter that pain. So how does this look? In the book of Job in the Old Testament, there's a story about this dude named Job. And so basically the summary of the story is this, is that these bad things happen to him. And when I say bad things, this is where in Scripture we have to stop reading for a moment and stop, take a step back and go, okay, this actually happened. So Job, bad things happen. When I say bad things, I mean all of his livestock were killed. And so you're talking about tens of thousands of livestock gone. That's his livelihood. That's his job. That's, that's his, his wealth. His house burned down. That's his place of existence. The place that he goes to rest. The place that he calls home. The place that he has built and was hoping to continue to build memories. It's gone. It's all burned down. He lost his kids. They're dead. They're gone. His wife cursed him and left him. Now, this is reality. This is an account of the story of Job. And so we find him now in this space. And in the Old Testament, it says that he sits down and he covers himself in ashes. And this is his way to articulate that he's in pain and he's sitting there. Now, Job has some close friends. And so his friends come on the scene and they enter in. And this is what they say to him. Job, I don't know what you did 
But whatever it is, you better fix it. Job, you screwed up. You need to figure out where you went wrong and change that. Now, imagine that. This story is truth. This story is reality. He's sitting there in this pain. He just lost everything. And his friends are telling him he did something wrong. He did something bad. That's why these terrible, horrific things are happening. And you better change it. You better fix it. Here's the problem. They never enter in to his pain. Do you see that? They came to Job, but they kept him at least, at least, follow me, at an arm's length away of, hey, you did something wrong, just fix it. They didn't enter into that at all. Job, in Job 6, 14, actually says, basically, let me paraphrase, it says, can a, can a person just have friends who actually are devoted to them? Can a, person who, can a person actually just have friends who just love them? Can a person have friends who will just sit with them in this space and understand their suffering, enter into the pain, and not keep it at arm's length? Can a friend just be like that? I don't know about you, but I think those are our words too. I think we all have cried at those words. Can we just get a friend, right? Can we just get a friend who's devoted? Yeah. And so the narrative of John 11, we see someone who is greater and better than the friends of Job. So here's the story. Jesus receives a letter from Mary and Martha saying that their brother is sick. Now, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are siblings. And not only are they siblings, I would say they're best friends with Jesus. And not only are they best friends with Jesus, they're actually disciples of him. And we see that because they refer to Jesus as the teacher or it would have been translated as the rabbi. So Jesus receives this note from Mary and Martha, and he's only a couple miles away, saying that Lazarus is sick. So we see then, in verse 17, him making the, the trip from where he was into the city. And before he even gets into the, the city walls of the, the town of Bethany, we see Martha come running up. And in her pain, in this space, she's trying to articulate where she's at. And she says this, Jesus, if you were only here, this would not have happened. Saying that Lazarus would still be alive. So when Jesus gets on the scene, Lazarus has been dead for four days. In Jewish, Jewish customs and culture, we have to understand this because it's important. Two things. One, a funeral lasts for seven days. Okay, so our culture, that wouldn't make sense. Ours maybe a couple hours, and then you have some food afterwards. In this culture, it lasts for seven days. So when Jesus arrives on day four, he's right in the middle of the funeral. And so 
not only is it important that, to know that he's right in the middle of the funeral, there is this idea or this belief, and this isn't in Scripture, but there is this cultural belief with the Jews that if someone died for four days or for three days, that spirit of that person would actually hover over their body, trying to get back in, and on the fourth day, if it wasn't allowed to get back in, it would leave. Okay, that's not our belief. That was a cultural belief of the Jews. Why is that important? Because what day did Jesus show up? Yeah, Jesus showed up on the fourth day. So people would know that it wasn't his spirit coming back, that he was dead. And when he was dead, he is dead. His spirit has left him. So we see Martha in this pain. We see Martha in really this place of brokenness. And I think we can all find ourselves in the place of, of Martha and in a little bit in the place of Mary. We're sitting in this middle place of pain, suffering, tears, and we don't know what to say. We don't know how to articulate it. Jesus then tells Martha, and he makes a big statement. We're not going to spend too much time on this. But he says, do you believe that I can do this? And he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He's claiming to be God himself. Only God holds the keys to life. Only God can reverse what death has created. Only God. So again, John, what's the point of John? That Jesus is God, right? There it is. So then Martha runs to the home to get Mary and says, hey, the teacher is here and he wants to speak to you. So we see, we see Mary now. It says the text says that she got up quickly and she ran to Jesus. And it's interesting because you see these people outside her house, right? Did you hear that in the text? There's people waiting outside of her house. So for those seven days of the funeral, there'd be people waiting. So anytime that you feel like you needed to go to the tomb to mourn, the loss of a loved one, there'd be people there waiting. So they would go with you. So we have Jesus, still not near the, the gates of the town yet. We have Mary. We have, we, have, we have Martha. We have Mary approaching with this crowd of Jews. And Mary gets there, and what does she say? She says the exact same thing as Martha. So she's trying to articulate her brokenness, her pain, Jesus, if you would have been here, this would have not happened. Jesus then asked, where have you put him? And in that, he sees really the pain not only of Mary and Martha and the Jews, this is where it gets interesting. The text says that he was deeply moved. You hear that twice, right? So that, those words actually in the original language mean this, and I'm going to have you guys do this with me in a second. It actually is you're so angry. Your nostrils are flaring like that of a wild animal. A little different from deeply moved, right? So when I hear deeply moved, I feel like, Maybe there's some tears, there's some emotions in there, and you're trying to hold them back, keep them deep, so they don't, people don't see them, right? 
Jesus is actually angry, and it says that his nostrils are flaring. And there's no other meaning for this. Do it with me. Come on, so I don't feel weird by myself. Yes, thank you. Yeah, his nostrils are, he's angry. It says he starts to move towards the tomb. He's angry at death because sin has brought death. So it's okay to be angry, absolutely. But the question is, what are you angry at? So Jesus, right, the Savior of the world, right, is angry. And he's moving towards the tomb and says, where have you laid him? And they tell him where the tomb's at. And then in 35, we see... We see this, the, most, the shortest and I think one of the most powerful verses. Jesus wept. Okay, put the story on pause for a second, okay? Put it on pause and just sit over here. Let me, let me tell you where I'm at on this. Let me be God for a second, okay? Here's, here's how I would have entered into the story if I was Jesus, right? Here's how I would have made it work out. When Jesus entered in, he's God, so he knows what is about to happen. And he says it actually in the beginning of John 11, that Lazarus won't die, he only will be sleeping for a little bit. So Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus knows his power. So if I'm God, and I entered into this funeral that's on day four, not in a, a mean way, but I probably would have had a smile on my face. Are you with me on that? I probably almost would have been laughing like, you have a narrow view of who I am. You don't get it. Just hold on. But what did Jesus do? Yeah, thank you. Got some interaction here. Was that a kid? Thank you. He did. He wept. Thank you. So in this space right here, we see Jesus not only angry with emotion, but it says he wept. And, and this weeping in the original language was this. And this, this makes me emotional. It's that he sat there, or stood there silently. There was no sound coming from his mouth. And that tears fell, full tears from his face to the ground. Because Jesus doesn't keep pain and suffering at arm's length, right? The Savior of the world doesn't react how Derek would have reacted, if I was God, the Savior of the world enters into our pain with anger, with suffering. He takes on our emotions. He meets us in those places that are difficult. He meets us in this space. So unlike Derek and unlike the friends of Job, Jesus enters in. Think about that. The God of everything, the one who created, as the book of Colossians says, who's created everything, that he's the one that spoke and it happened. He is with his people in tears and anger. He entered in. So he's the better friend. He's the best friend and he's the perfect friend. I want to say this too. 
God is the, or Jesus is the perfect man. And he wept. Men, something for us to think about. Jesus is and was the perfect man. And he wept. And somehow in our culture, we've been taught that it's not okay to cry. I don't know where those rules come from, by the way. I don't know who created that rule. But Jesus breaks it. When I felt a, a call or, or this, this push or maybe it was just me going, oh, I want to go into, I want to be a pastor, a vocational ministry. My one kind of hurl that was keeping me back was this. I grew up in church. Anytime I, I saw a pastor do a wedding or a pastor do a funeral or a, a, a pastor um, do a baptism. So think about these moments. These are three huge moments of life, Right? And so baptism, someone proclaiming that they're going to give their life and follow Jesus forever. And with their own voice, they're saying, Jesus, you are my Savior. In a wedding, we're taking two lives that were separate. And as the book of Genesis says, we're taking them and we're putting them together. And those two shall be one forever. That's a huge moment of life. And then a funeral Hopefully, we're celebrating the life that someone lived, but the hope they have in the life after. So really, those three moments, those three life stages, we're celebrating life. But here's what I saw. Here's why I thought I couldn't be a pastor. I saw pastors going through the motion of baptizing people. All right, next. All right, next. I'm like, and I'm sitting in the chairs with tears coming down my face. I still do. I sit at funerals and I weep. I sit at weddings and I think about what's really happening and I weep. Sometimes tears of sorrow, sometimes tears of joy. And sometimes I even do it if I'm doing the funeral or the wedding or the baptism. I think we're called to enter into. So that was my struggle of, I don't want to just go through the motions of life. I don't want to just enter in like Job's friends and try to fix it. I actually want to go into the pain, the suffering, the tears. This is why we see, you guys know I have three boys, this is why we see when a child gets hurt, if mom and dad are there, who do they run to? Yeah, it's mom. Why? They run to mom because the moms are gifted, usually better than dads, to enter into the pain, right? That's why. They know, the child knows that the mom will meet them in that place. I think a lot of times for us as dads, it's easier to keep it at arm's length or think we enter into it and then try to fix it. And I say that because I, I know I do that. But they go to mom because of this. They know they'll enter in. How about this? One more cultural thing. And some of you guys said this to me this morning. So if you go to your office in the morning, you see your kids in the morning, whatever it is, what, what do you say to people? How you doing? Right? It's a cultural thing. And this is, we only do this in the United States, by the way. How are you doing? And your response must be what? 
fine. Someone, I'm fine. <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> but usually it's this. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. Oh, great. And then I see how I do that. I even bring it up a little bit, right? But are we prepared? Are we ready? On, on two places. Are we ready to say, you know what? I'm not okay. I'm, I'm in this place right here. Are we ready to say that? Are we ready to articulate that? Are we ready to be honest about that? That's one space. The other one, are we ready for the, for the response when I say, how are you doing? And I hear, as I'm walking away because it's only a conversation piece, and I hear, I'm not doing okay. Then what? Oh, things get messy at that point. I'm out, right? But this is what we do in culture, but yet we see the God of the world enter in. As Jesus approaches the tomb, we see him again. It says he was deeply moved. You guys already know he's angry. He tells the, the Jews who are standing there, and, and imagine this, put it in our perspective. Imagine there being a casket with someone in there, and that person's been in there for four days, and now Jesus is saying, open up that casket. This is huge, because once the, the stone is rolled away, if he calls the dead person out and it doesn't happen, Jesus is not God. You follow me on that? It's done. It's over. This, is, this isn't happening if he calls Lazarus out, that means that Jesus does not have power over death. But as he stands there and he looks into the dark cave, day four of the funeral and people are weeping around, he shouts in a loud voice with authority and the power of God, Lazarus, come out. Now think about this. The dead man walked out. The casket was opened by the crowd, but the man crawled out of the, crawled out of the casket on his own power. In Jewish custom, they would have wrapped the legs together, so the feet up to the chest with cloth. They would have wrapped the left arm from the hand to the shoulder and the right arm from the hand of the shoulder. That's four piece, or three pieces of cloth. Then the fourth one would have been wrapped around the head. This guy just walked out. This is what we see. So Lazarus is walking out, and I love the end of this, of this story. Jesus said to them, verse 44, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Story's over. We don't hear anything about Lazarus. That's it. But it's interesting, if you go down to verse, I think it's 53, it says that from this day forward, this is the moment they went after Jesus to take his life. So the narrative of John 11, 17 through 44, is this. There's brokenness, there's, there's this place of brokenness leads to suffering, leads to pain, leads to tears, leads to anger. And then there's this 
this new life. We see Lazarus walk out. That was what was dead is now alive. That which was crying in grief is now hope. This is the story of what we call the gospel. This is the whole story of, of the Bible in, in John 11, 17 through 44. The whole story of scripture is this. From Genesis 3, we see man broken, rusty, and separated from God because of sin. For years in scripture, we see this pain and this suffering happening. And people trying to fix it by the things of this world. Trying to grasp on to hope and just stay above the waterline of how and what is this life about. But we see Jesus enter into this. That the Father sent Jesus to earth to redeem that what was broken. To enter into the pain, to enter into the suffering. Not only in his life, but in his death. He took on all the pain, all the sin, all the brokenness, all the suffering, all the oppression, all of it in one moment on the cross. Because of that, we see him being put in the tomb. And for three days, he was in the tomb. And when he came out, something happened. It was the perfect promise of that we have hope in this life and we have hope in the next. That just like Jesus came out of the tomb, so will we. That death has lost its sting. Death has lost its power because Jesus Christ has died and he came back from the dead. But the point is that God entered into our pain and our suffering and meets us exactly where we're at. He doesn't keep us at arm's length. So all pain, all suffering on the cross. That's the story of this. It's the whole story. That Jesus entered in, entered in, he pursued you, he loves you, he died for you, he came back from the dead for you, and his promise is that he owns a place. Let me tell you about the place he owns, by the way. He owns a place where there's no suffering. He owns a place where there's no oppression. He owns the place where there's no tears. He owns the place where there's no bad anger. That's the place that he owns. He owns the place where there's no sin. So the point in the story of Lazarus isn't that a man rose from the dead. The point in the story the point of the story of Lazarus is this, that Jesus enters into our pain right where you're at, right now. I have no idea where you're at, but right now where you're at. He enters into your pain. He meets in your suffering. He weeps with you. As the prophet Isaiah said, he's the man of sorrows, the man of great sorrows because he knows your pain. He's entered in. The, the point of the story of John 11 is Jesus be glorified. Some takeaways for you. I think we're called to be honest about our pain. 
with people. At the same time, I think, and this is my challenge, because I think, I think God's calling me out on this, I want to share it with you guys. We are called to enter into the pain with other people. We're not called to be Job's friends to try to fix it or to have answers. We're called to do what I call the ministry of sitting. The ministry of sitting is when someone's going through pain, you just sit with them. You might want something a little more brilliant than that, but that's the reality. You just sit with them. And when they want to cry, you cry with them. When they want to laugh, you laugh with them. When they want to go do something, you go with them. And when they want to just sit again, you just sit with them again. That's the ministry of sitting. You don't go in and fix it, change it. You just be. No simple answers. Just be. Every one of you has the power to do that. So invite conversation. Don't fix. Um, but ask people about the uncomfortable stuff. I think it's a pretty boring life if we go through it just trying to be safe and not dive into suffering with people or people's tears and we just try to keep to ourselves. What kind of life is that, right? On a Thursday before Jesus was crucified, he set up in the home that he probably grew up in and it was the upper room of his mom's home. And he had this this dinner that he had many times with the disciples. And they would have this bread that was flat bread, almost like a cracker. And then they would have this wine, and probably one goblet of wine with multiple cups. And it was a Passover meal. It was the meal from the book of Exodus. It was reminding them they're out of slavery. They came out of slavery, that God covered them with a cloud and a pillar of fire, parted the Red Sea, got them into the promised land. They took them from a place of brokenness, of suffering, and gave them new life. And so this is what the Passover meal is about. But this one Thursday, something different happened. As Jesus was breaking the bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. Imagine that. This is the first time the disciples heard this. Then, Prior and them pausing and saying, what did he just say? He grabbed the cup filled with wine and probably poured it out into their cup. And as it was flowing from one cup to another, he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. We're going to take communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the Last Supper, whatever you call it. Here's the point. We do this to remember what Jesus did. So as you take the piece of bread, do this. As you take the piece of bread, think about, and look at it, think about the body broken for you. The body of Christ on the cross, meeting you in your pain and your suffering. As you go to dip it into the cup, just take your time doing this, and the bread absorbs the juice. As it does that, think about the blood of Christ poured out 
for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. We celebrate communion as a way of raising the glass to Jesus and saying, this life is all about your glory. You have met us in our pain, in our brokenness, in suffering, and the promise of Jesus is bringing life out of death and bringing hope from grief today, tomorrow, and in the next life. Meet Jesus in that place because I believe he's waiting for you. That's the reality of John 11. God, I ask that your spirit moves within these walls. Jesus, we come to the communion table not so that we can receive, but so we can give you glory. We're proclaiming in this moment, God, that you that you are the Savior of the world. That it's not by what we have done, but it's by you coming down, you meeting us, you taking the place on the cross that we deserved, you dying, and you coming back from the dead. Jesus, we celebrate you, we proclaim you. I ask that you meet us where we're at right now, God. Jesus, help us to hold on to the promise that you will continue to enter in to our pain, no matter how dark or how deep it is, that you will never keep us at an arm's length. Jesus, thank you for weeping with us. Jesus, thank you for being angry at the death that sin has caused. We proclaim you as the Messiah now. In your holy name, Jesus, as always, amen.